Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. We're listening to Louis Armstrong's version of Mac the Knife. Originally written in German by Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weil, the song was also covered by Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, and perhaps most famously by Bobby Darren. It's just one example of a popular cultural export from Weimar Germany to post-war America. Bauhaus chairs populated the country's living rooms. Films like Cabaret swept the board at the Oscars. In recent years, however, Weimar has more commonly been used as a political reference point. Anyone who stands to the left of Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden will find themselves compared to the Communist Party of Germany. And he shows them a but the most remarkable invocation of German history came from Arnold Schwarzenegger after the Capitol Hill riot earlier this year. As an immigrant to this country, I would like to say a few words to my fellow Americans and to our friends around the world about the events of recent days. Now, I grew up in Austria. I'm very aware of Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. It was a night of rampage against the Jews carried out in 1938 by the Nazi equivalent of the Proud Boys. The broken glass was in the windows of the United States Capitol. But the mob did not just shatter the windows of the Capitol. They shattered the ideals we took for granted. They did not just break down the doors of the building that housed the American democracy. They trampled the very principles on which our country was founded. The more people talk about Weimar Germany as the master key to our own time, the less we seem to know about its real history. Our guest today is Sean Larson. Sean is an historian who specialises in the German Revolution and the Weimar Republic. How did the German monarchy fall at the end of 1918 and what were the key political actors at that time? So the German Kaiser was toppled by the November Revolution, the same November Revolution that ended the First World War. And the important thing to understand about this revolution is not just a a change of figureheads. It's a deep-rooted social revolution that sweeps through all different aspects of German life at the time. This is coming in the middle of uh, World War I, very highly regimented, disciplined wartime routines. And as soon as people start in city after city, as soon as people start taking over their neighborhoods and their workplaces, it creates a kind of a new public sphere, um, the likes of which German people had never seen before. The movement itself is also pretty spectacular at times. So you've got people, uh, for example, in Munich, uh, storming the military prisons and freeing all the prisoners before um, setting up their own kind of structures in in Hamburg. There's a a showdown between naval officers from the Kaiser's army um, who take up arms against revolutionary workers until a fleet of red sailors come in with a a Kaiser's cruiser and... uh, turn their guns on the officers and, and kind of uh, save the day. So I think that the, the, the revolution itself um, is really much more of a, a social, you know, it brings in all manner of all layers of the German population. The main vehicle of the revolution is the workers' council. And these are structures that had been developed by necessity during a, a series of wartime mass political strikes. Um, so during these strikes during a war, the typical workers' organizations, the unions and the Social Democratic Party, refuse to participate. And so workers are left to kind of develop their own structures. Um, and so they come up with these workers' councils. They're democratically elected. They're flexible, kind of improvised. Um, 
bodies that are designed to just take decisions and then take action on those decisions. Um, and that's really how workers during a revolution get things done. Um, the, these bodies uh, around the country obviously look very different in different cities, but they do share uh, a few demands. So th- some of those include the democratization of the state and the army, um, nationalization of major industries, and uh, workers' power in many instances to organize a kind of a future out of this this bleak wartime reality that a lot of people had just gone gone through for the last four years. So the councils also start to exercise a real claim to social power, right? They're not just playing around. They're also uh, coordinating strikes. They're seizing counter-revolutionary newspapers. They're preventing troop movements. And, and they start to pose a real challenge to the existing structures. But they're also shaped by some of the various pre-existing organizations and networks. So I mentioned the Social Democratic Party and the, and the trade unions. These were, you know, the German workers movement is probably the best organized workers movement in the world before the war. And the party, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, SPD, and the the free trade unions, which are very closely affiliated, are the chief expressions of that organization. Um, And it's important to note that, you know, before the war, for working people, loyalty to those organizations is pretty deeply rooted in a whole culture of wraparound political and social and uh, organizational services. Um, It's a whole life world. But in 1914, both the party and the union suffer a a huge blow to their credibility when they support the war effort. And to be clear, that's not just a, a more of an abstract betrayal of principle. It's also beginning a process where the party and the unions transform themselves over the course of the war into the disciplinarians of the, uh, an increasingly unsettled workers' movement. And so just to be upfront, you know, the social democratic leaders especially don't really come out of the German Revolution looking very good. Uh, they go through a lot of different twists and turns. They make a lot of alliances with the army, with the industrialists, um, with parties to the right. They break those alliances at some points and then reforge others at other points. But that's something that I think you know, is, is one of the characteristics of, of the revolution. The unions also play a really... Uh, during the November outbreak, they play a stabilizing role because they immediately forge an alliance um, or not an alliance. They, for, they forge, they create an institution with the employers. Um, it's called the Central Working Group or Zentralarbeitsgemeinschaft, an institutional forum uh, that's designed essentially to short circuit the rank and file movement organized through the councils, but also to, you know, they get something out of it. They get the, under the pressure of the revolution, they get the employers to agree to the eight-hour day, a long-standing demand of the workers' movement that's, you know, a huge victory of the revolution, even though it does prove to be temporary. And the joint body they create is uh, one of the main organizers of the demobilization and plays a big role throughout the rest of the revolution. The other key organizers of the revolution are the revolutionary shop stewards. Now, these are a, a group, a network of trusted and well-placed metal workers Around the country, they have bases, you know, in central Germany and in Berlin, especially. And this is the group that was responsible for organizing the wartime strikes that brought out over a million people, most of whom were, were actually women. In 1918, it was 75% women uh, who were going on a strike during the war. Revolutionary shop stewards are members of another party called the Independent Social Democratic Party, uh, the USPD. And this is a large party. They split from the Social Democrats in 1917 based upon opposition to the war, but also kind of under the spell of the, the Bolshevik Revolution. And the USPD is um, it's kind of a hodgepodge politically. 
It's uh, united mainly by its pacifism, and it functions as a kind of useful container for various different forces, such as the revolutionary shop stewards. But also the last group that I'll just touch on here is is the, the more politically visionary group within the USPD at the time of the revolution, which is the Spartacus group, a huge number of whom were actually in prison at the time of the outbreak of the November Revolution, including its key leader, uh, Rosa Luxemburg. So most of the Spartacus group's cadre were graduates of the SPD party school that Luxembourg had run prior to the war. And then uh, during the war, they, they cohered themselves by distributing a number of leaflets called the, the Spartacus Letters that put forward Luxembourg and, and all of their political vision, which was really emphasizing uh, the self-activity of the working class. It called for the rejection of what they considered very fixed and passive uh, political recipes by the Social Democrats in favor of, you know, trusting the, the strength and creativity of the popular movement. So, I mean, they saw themselves, uh, con- their perspective, really confirmed by the, the arrival of the council movement, which was this, you know, spontaneously improvised kind of movement. Um, but they also believed that socialists should aim to provide that movement with a kind of ideological backbone. Um, so they had a vision that was like forward striving, you know, decisive, and, and they opposed themselves in that regard to the kind of default wait and see approach of the unions and the Social Democratic Party. Why did the Spartacist uprising take place in Berlin towards the beginning of 1919 and what were its outcomes? Yeah, um, so the the Spartacus uprising or the the January uprising is the culmination of a months-long dual power struggle between the provisional government uh, set up after the revolution and the council movement that had broken out all over the country. So through November and December, these two forces are jockeying against each other for state power. You know, they deploy various bureaucratic maneuvers, but also armed confrontations in the streets at some points, though it it does remain largely nonviolent. Throughout that process, and with with the help of a secret agreement with the the army, uh, the SPD leaders around Friedrich Ebert, who is the leader of the SPD at this point, um, ultimately come to occupy the positions, uh, the dominant positions within the provisional government while workers in Berlin and elsewhere continue to assert uh, their control over their shop floors, over their neighborhoods, they're, they're acting in the councils and creating their own structures rather than relying on the, the institutions of the party and the unions. So there's a significant showdown shortly after the first uh, nationwide Congress of these councils in, in December. This is one of the stepping stones. The SPD, who's uh, in power in the provisional government, can try to, they're hoping to consolidate their control by ousting a bastion of revolutionary sailors who are holed up near the city center. In the course of the conflict, Ebert calls in the old German, German army command um, to fire on the sailors on Christmas, uh, which ends up killing over 30 people. And while this is happening, you know, people are hearing about it. Unarmed people from around the city, including many women and children, came to defend the sailors. Um, ultimately, they repel the attack, um, and the incident becomes a turning point that polarized large sections of the movement against the SPD and trigger the USPD, who had been participating in a kind of junior role in the provisional government, triggers their leaving the provisional government. It also marked a high point in an ongoing media campaign across the, the full range of the Berlin press that's demonizing the Spartacus leader, Karl Liebknecht, who's another hero of the Spartacists. They're calling him, you know, portraying him as some kind of master of chaos and the harbinger of Bolshevism. And so what followed this incident was a pretty seriously tense situation in the beginning of the new year, in in early January. So after that setback, uh, the government under Ebert 
want to, I mean, they feel compelled to consolidate their power by challenging the last real bastion of opposition to the provisional government, which is organized in the revolutionary police militia uh, controlled by the radical Emil Eichhorn. Their attempt to dismiss Eichhorn from his post in early January is the spark that then prompts the USPD revolutionary shop stewards to plan an anti-government demonstration for January 5th. I call this the January uprising because they planned the uprising and then only afterwards did they invite the Spartacus group who were now at this point organized as the Communist Party of Germany or the KPD. And of course, the Spartacus uh, endorsed the demonstration. So when the day comes, the demonstration is unexpectedly massive. It's got hundreds of thousands of people. And after a few speeches, they march on the newspaper district to occupy the social democratic newspaper, Vorwärts. Revolutionary leaders hadn't really planned this and hadn't planned to occupy the newspaper district. But once the facts were established on the ground, they defended it and they called for a general strike. In response, the government organized a crackdown on this, organized by the SPD war minister Gustav Noske, who brings in uh, battalions of the extreme right-wing paramilitary organization, the Freikorps, to clear out the occupation. This is the beginning of a a nationwide bloodbath by these proto-fascist forces, indiscriminate killing and extrajudicial killings all across the country um, of suspected Spartacists and ultimately the capture and the murder of, of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. Um, and I think it's important to emphasize that it's pretty hard to overstate the sheer violence that's involved in this crackdown. It's not just putting down a demonstration. It's it's a witch hunt. Um, people are getting uh, their homes barged into. You know, people are getting shot left and right uh, w- without any kind of semblance of, of democratic trials or anything like this. In recent times, the closest parallel with the role of the Freikorps in Weimar, Germany, could be found in Colombia. Right-wing paramilitary groups operated with the blessing of the state and waged war on the Colombian left. They killed thousands of trade union members and other activists with social organisations, along with countless civilians who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. The paramilitaries claimed to be fighting in response to the left-wing FARC guerrillas. However, when the FARC signed a peace deal with the Colombian government, these right-wing death squads often expanded their operations into new territory. At the height of the Colombian conflict, for the farmers of San José de Apartado, even picking avocados had become too dangerous. This 2017 report from Al Jazeera describes one example. So two decades ago, caught in the middle between rebels, army and paramilitary groups, they formed a peace community and sought international help. We suffered countless violations against us. So we created this small organization to resist, or at least highlight how both the guerrilla and state forces were killing us or pushing us out. They moved into five-piece villages, stopped growing and selling illegal crops, carrying guns, or cooperating with any of the warring parties. But while their neutrality has given them a way to resist, it has not kept them safe. Nearly 300 members have been killed, and while they hope the recent peace deal with FARC rebels would bring some relief, they say they're facing more, not less, violence. Since the beginning of the year, new paramilitary groups have moved in, operating in new areas and threatening people. 
habían llegado. Since signing the peace deal with the rebels FARC, the government has been dismissing or outright denying the role that paramilitary groups are still playing in areas like this one. But for the people here, the evidence is undeniable. After the repression of the uprising and the deaths of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, what was the balance of forces between the Social Democrats and the Communist Party in the German workers' movement? Yeah, so after this this bloody spring of 1919, uh, the first phase of the German Revolution uh, can be considered over. It comes to an end. The Workers' and Soldiers' Council movement has been defeated pretty decisively. Um, what, what had become full-blown council republics in Bavaria and in Bremen are brutally suppressed, um, as well as other epicenters of, of council power in Düsseldorf and Mannheim and Halle and other cities. Um, the subsequent period, which lasts roughly from March 1919 to March 1920, um, is a period that's characterized by the revolutionary movement turn to more economically oriented factory councils as their arena. Now, these are based upon workplaces specifically rather than the political councils. While, you know, there's still ongoing strike waves, especially in the, rep, the, the Western Ruhr industrial region, which is a key region for the, the German Revolution, strike waves there, strike waves in Berlin and central Germany, uh, all of these are calling for the socialization of the mines and the heavy industries, um, which is a demand that was ultimately killed in committee by the new government. But it was an important part of, of the 1919 movement. Over the course of that year, though, um, the workers' movement shifts pretty noticeably to the defensive. So they're no longer calling the shots on what their actions are. They're more responding to external events. In January of 1919, the Weimar Republic has its first National Assembly elections. So these are the first elections of the new republic. It's the first uh, elections where the women have the suffrage. Um, and they yield a new coalition government, which is predominantly comprised of what was called the Weimar Coalition. This is the Social Democratic Party of Germany, the Catholic Center Party, and the DDP, uh, a liberal party. Over the course of that year, 1919, the SPD leadership consolidates its alliance with the old military in the process of this repression. And their cooperation with, with these other parties in parliament also kind of further identify them with, uh, with the state and the republic itself. Meanwhile, the free trade unions are undergoing a sweeping reorganization and centralization in the summer of 1919. And this is partly in response to the German employers organizations who or earlier that year had also gone through a sweeping reorganization and centralization. But the new organization, the trade unions, was, was also accompanied by a, a renewal of their ideological program. They're putting out a, a platform for a kind of trade union-led version of the welfare state. And this is designed to re-legitimize the unions after they lost a lot of trust during the revolution. But it's also to kind of take the wind out of the sails of what was becoming a growing radical intra-union opposition comprised of the same, you know, USPD members around the factory councils and the revolutionary shop stewards. It was kind of challenging the unions from within. The Communist Party of Germany uh, was founded at the turn of the year by a bunch of politically heterogeneous groups uh, who came together from around the country. They're really united more or less by the charisma of Rosa Luxemburg uh, and Karl Liebknecht. They're very young. So at the founding Congress, there's over 75% of them are under 35. Half of them were workers. Um, and the resulting party that they, they founded was a rather loose grouping 
uh, with no real shared perspective on organization and also very weak ties to the working class. Um, by that summer, a huge layer, you know, the, the Communist Party had just got, undergone all of this repression. There's a huge layer of their leaders who are killed. Um, the KPD was in disarray organizationally and politically. There's elements within the new party who are exclusively devoted to refounding the political councils and refuse to do anything else. They call for leaving the trade unions entirely, uh, while a lot of the other people in, in the KPD put up, refuse to put up candidates for parliamentary elections. But by the next party Congress that they have, which happens in October 1919, all of those elements are expelled from the KPD, largely because of the efforts of the new KPD leader, Paul Levy. So the party that resulted, uh, the communists, was pretty politically insignificant, I would call it. And it consisted mainly of uh, small local underground groups by February 1920. How did the German left respond to the Kapp Putsch of 1920? And what did the Putsch reveal about the disposition of the German army, the industrialists and the civil service? So the Kapp Putsch was organised by German nationalists uh, in a section of the Reichswehr. Uh, Freikorps troops marched into Berlin on March 13th, prompting the SPD government leaders to flee the city. Uh, And the quickest to react to this are the newly centralized trade unions under their leader, Karl Legian. The unions, along with the SPD and almost all parties of the left, call a general strike on the day of the putsch. Notably, the KPD leadership initially refuses to, uh, what, they, what they say, lift a finger in defense of the republic. But they correct their mistake two days later, after a rank-and-file communists uh, around the country had already organized strikes and renewed the council movement. And the result of this call for a general strike is the largest general strike in German history. It's got over 12 million workers halting their work. In Berlin, uh, which is where the showdown really happens, there are two strike leaderships that arise. One is based around the official union leaderships. um, And then a more radical one is comprised of a a coalition of the USPD, the KPD, the Factory Council Movement's national leadership, and also the, the headquarters of the Berlin Organization. So the Berlin intra-union opposition is is the focal point for union opposition around the country. So as the strike wears on, um, the presses are shut down. Reliable communication is almost impossible in the city. Um, and in that context, the strike is going on for days and days. The reason that it's got this continuity and then escalation was largely due to the initiative of local groups of workers acting on their own. After five days during which time the Public Officials Union also joins the strike leadership. The coup ends, but the strike does not end. Legian enters negotiations with the SPD government, while workers' councils in the Ruhr Industrial Region form a Red Army of some 100,000 members and take control of wide swaths of uh, Ruhr territory. Finally, the strike ends on the 20th, with promises by the government uh, to institute the trade union agenda, while the the government then sends in repressive forces to put down the revolutionary movement in the Ruhr. And there are a few takeaways from the cap putsch. One, the general strike revitalizes the German left. Trade union membership hits 8.1 million members. It's the highest it's ever been. And just to give an example of the power that this signifies, union density in the crucial metalworking industry tops 91% union density. So the strike in the Ruhr movement also puts wind in the sails of the factory council movement again. Uh, And there's something else going on here, too. One of the most important reasons that the putsch could not really continue was that German capital did not want it to. 
The employers' organizations consider the whole affair premature at best, but really a lot of them see it as an outright crime because it comes in the context of when it happens, it's threatening the progress that they're making, finally recovering productivity levels and signs that uh, the exchange rate of the mark were improving. So ultimately, the cap push, I think, can be considered uh, representative of the continued threat of the far right. And it's, it's really an attempt uh, or testing some tentative responses to this new Republican order. The idea of soldiers getting involved in politics is now meant to be ancient history in Europe and North America. But the rise of the left in British politics after 2015 prompted several army commanders, both serving and retired, to accuse Jeremy Corbyn of threatening national security. Those charges were made in public, but we also had a glimpse of what was being said behind closed doors in April 2019, as ITV reported. The soldiers of the Parachute Regiment routinely carry out target practice. On this occasion, they filmed themselves and posted on social media. The headline, Happy With That, suggests they've hit the target. Then footage reveals Jeremy Corbyn is apparently that target. His face has taken a number of hits and the Labour leader responded, saying this is concerning at a time when threats against politicians are increasingly common. I'm shocked, obviously, that this sort of thing has happened. I hope the Ministry of Defence will conduct an inquiry into it and find out what was going on and who did that. The footage has been leaked at a time of increased tension in British politics, and there's pressure on the investigation not only to find those responsible, but to examine whether this reveals a bigger concern, that politics is at play in Britain's armed forces, allowing some soldiers to see the Labour leader as their opposition. The head of the British Army, Sir Mark Carlton Smith, recorded an extraordinary video of his own, promising a full investigation. All these allegations are being taken very seriously by the military chain of command and are now under active investigation by the police. Where serious allegations are proven against members of the army, including allegations of a violent or sexual nature, it demonstrates indiscipline that is wildly at odds with the values and the standards that represent the fabric of not just our army, but the nation's army. Three months later, the Ministry of Defence announced that the soldiers had been disciplined, but none of them had been sacked. How did the Communist Party come to launch the failed uprising that was known as the March Action in 1921? So I want to give a little context here, not just for the March Action, but because around this time, a lot of different things are happening that set up the developments for the rest of the Weimar Republic. 1920 was a major turning point in the German revolutionary movement. And there are a number of developments that play into that, in the workers' movement, in the economy, and also within the Communist Party of Germany. So through, throughout 1919 and most of 1920, the revolutionary shop stewards and other factory council activists within the USPD had become increasingly dissatisfied with the leadership of the USPD, their own party. In addition to the kind of state violence over this period, there's social conditions continue to stagnate or even deteriorate. And the, this left wing of the USPD are attempting to organize direct collective actions in order to improve workers' livelihoods. But they're continually thwarted from doing so because USPD leaders uh, were staunchly committed to a strategy that prioritized the labor capital partnership that was set up in that institution in 1918. Meanwhile, the Communist International, 
um, based in Moscow, uh, is making overtures that were becoming more and more attractive to the USPD left because organizing along communist lines would offer them more freedom of action, even if some of the leaders weren't quite fully convinced on some of the points that that would entail affiliating to the Communist International. On the other hand, the trade unions uh, had been trying to liquidate the the factory council movement since uh, before January 1920. Uh, In January, there's legislation, but ultimately they finally succeed in subordinating the factory councils under union authority in October. So after that setback, the radicals and the left wing of the USPD decide to unite with the much smaller KPD at this point, splitting the USPD party down the middle in a very famous Congress in Halle and forming what is called the United Communist Party in December of 1920. The new party has uh, about 450,000 members. It's the first mass party, mass communist party outside of Russia. And most of the rank and file of this new party had just gone through two years of enforced passivity and restrained actions under the more conservative USPD leadership. So their general mood is a, a very strong demand for action. And action here is quite ambiguous. The meaning of that ranged from, on the one hand, there, uh, there's coordinated initiatives at workplaces throughout December and January of a new type. And on the other hand, there's demand for uh, what was constantly referred to as a great all-encompassing deed in reaction to the intensification of the employer's offensive. And here, I think it's really important to understand the economic conjuncture, which also becomes important after the March action. In 1920, the global economy enters a recession. There's a severe impact on the Western Entente countries, the U.S., France, and Great Britain, all of whom implement deflationary policies as a response. That means slowing economic growth, downsizing firms in the hopes of a quicker recovery. When unproductive firms close, of course, uh, there's a sharp uptick in unemployment, which is exacerbated by layoffs in the public sector. In Germany, they also want to institute deflationary policies. They'd love to do this, um, and they attempt to, but they, throughout the end of 1920 and the beginning of 1921, they're prevented from doing so because the German government in the fall of 1920 is facing widespread riots and strikes. Their main concern is that deflation would cause the drastic rise in unemployment that could tip the scales of this social unrest toward full-blown revolution again. When it comes down to it, the state is actually forced to do the opposite of downsizing. So an unprecedented decree on November the 8th called the Stilllegungsverordnung severely restricts the closure of factories and firms. The state prevents them from doing so. At the same time, the government is subsidizing private firms to keep employment levels artificially high in the private sector at the cost of redundancy, inefficiency, etc. In the fall and winter, when the government attempts to cut costs through layoffs in the, in the notoriously bloated public railway system and civil service system, they meet massive worker opposition and the mounting danger of a railroad and postal workers strike. The only reason that the German economy keeps running at this point is because the finance ministry and the economics ministry set up an elaborate system of export controls to maintain a rather slim export advantage throughout the 1920 to 21 recession. Also, private capital from the West is flowing into Germany as a refuge really betting that the German market is going to make a big recovery. This is a dilemma. The reason I go through this is because this is a dilemma that is going to continue to arise throughout the revolutionary period. The German state faces a task of restoring profitability, which under capitalism requires them to essentially break the organized labor movement. 
But German workers at this point are still too organized and militant uh, during the revolutionary period. So for now, capital and the state go along to get along, even while they're constantly pushed by these economic conditions to reestablish control over the labor movement. So that's the context. March action uh, is coming in, in March 1921. So after the, the previous year, the Ruhr uprising, the putting down of the cap putsch had a rather contradictory outcome. So in conjunction with the employers' organizations and the demands of industrialists, the SPD in power starts to expand state security apparatuses to intervene in civil disturbances and restore public order. As this depression deepens uh, and conditions get worse and worse in early 1921, there's widespread looting, job shirking that are also added to the, the regular spontaneous strikes that continue about you know, control of the shop floor. All of this is creating a wildly unstable business climate. So when factory directors in Saxony uh, demand the government intervene, state officials prepare a police action to reestablish order. They move in heavily armed police forces to occupy firms in the region. Uh, and this is happening around mid-March. Within the Communist Party, the KPD, there's a very promising new strategy for workplace actions that was developing over the course of the end, the winter especially in the Ruhr and cities like Stuttgart. But at the same time, these blustery, you know, demands for that great all-encompassing deed get support from a mid-level Comintern functionary uh, who had recently barreled into Germany. His name's Bela Kuhn, a hot-headed, not very experienced Hungarian. And these discussions are all, you know, happening in the context where the, the two parties that had joined to form this new Communist Party are still in the process, in the very beginning stages, really, of integrating themselves organizationally, politically, and strategically. So all of this is the context in which the KPD leadership reacts to the police operation. They do so by completely losing their heads. They decide the situation is the turning point in the world revolution. Um, they issue a call for a general strike and armed resistance. And in the event, uh, only a minority of German workers heed the call to strike. So communists then respond by attempting to forcibly prevent huge numbers of non-communist workers from entering their workplaces. After about a week of police bombardments, you know, there's dynamite explosions, battles between workers. March action uh, com completely collapses in utter defeat. It's a, the entire operation is a fiasco. It sows distrust between rank-and-file communists and their co-workers. Um, and it also, uh, in the aftermath, the KPD hemorrhages members. They lose uh, about 300,000 of their original 450,000. So it doesn't go well for the communists. The other outcome of the March action is a reforging of the bonds between the social democrats and the forces of order in the state and in industry. So in the year prior, of course, during Cat Putsch, there's a wedge that's driven between the SPD and the unions on the one hand and the army and the employers on the other. But the lessons of the March action led to a closer coordination between them in a common hostility to communism, essentially, and worker radicalism. One of the most remarkable channels between German communism and the Soviet Union ran through the person of Willy Munzenberg. Munzenberg created a media empire in 1920s Germany that led one historian to describe him as a Marxist Rupert Murdoch. The companies he founded produced books, magazines, newspapers, and even movies bringing radical ideas to a huge audience. One of their great achievements was the promotion of Sergei Eisenstein's film Battleship Potemkin. We're listening to the music from a famous scene where SARS troops massacre civilians on the Odessa steppes. 
Brian De Palma later copied it in his film The Untouchables. Munzenberg himself often had a strained relationship with the Soviet Union after the rise of Stalin and eventually broke with the KPD altogether. He was found dead in Paris in 1940 after escaping from a French internment camp. The cause of his death has never been confirmed. Broadly speaking, how would you characterise the relationship between the German Communist Party and the Soviet government in the early 1920s? So the KPD's relationship to the Soviets is mediated primarily through the Communist International, which is a body that encompasses communist parties from all around the world. The first four congresses of the Comintern are the ones that take place over this period, were important strategic crucibles for the global communist movement, but especially for Germany. A lot of their central debates uh, are, are all about Germany. Um, and I think, you know, when, when we're considering this, uh, this relationship, there's a little bit of a tendency, just like with the, the history of the Weimar Republic itself, there's a bit of a tendency to want to read the international influence of the Bolsheviks through the lens of subsequent developments under Stalin. When the carefully built revolutionary movement uh, internationally was subordinated to the interests of an emerging bureaucratic class in Russia. The reality on the ground, I think, in Germany from 1918 to 23 looks a little bit different. Um, so it's important to remember that internationalism was the foundation of the Spartacus group when it was founded. Every single one of the underground Spartacus letters during the war began with a prominent quotation from Luxembourg's Unius Theses, which were the founding document of the Spartacus group. They read, the center of gravity of the organization of the proletariat as a class is the international. And the obligation to carry out the decisions of the international takes precedence over all else. So that's Rosa Luxemburg. It's also you know, the Comintern's main representative in Germany, Karl Radek, had played a pretty instrumental role in the development of the German socialist movement since before the war, especially in the city of Bremen. Um, and his continued analysis and advice proved pretty indispensable for the German party throughout the revolutionary period. All of that said... Around the time of the march, there, there, there were also some severe, uh, you know, frictions. Uh, around the time of the march action, some of the elements of the Third International create a lot of confusion in the leading German communists groupings. Namely, uh, you know, Bela Kuhn's personal insistence on the insurrectionary offensive, uh, but also others. Now, I don't think that that influence was the decisive factor in the march action, but it certainly didn't help. Um, so in Russia, the context that this is coming from is this is the after the failure of the Polish campaign of the Red Army um, and the looming introduction of the new economic policy, which um, would introduce some capitalist measures in Russia, and they don't want to do that. Um, so they're hoping that a, there, there are a lot of hopes in the Soviet Union that Germany will provide some relief to the Soviet people. Uh, some kind of revolution in Germany would would kind of be their salvation. So when you combine that with the, the loss of a number of key KPD leaders at the time and the organizational disarray of the party, that left the remaining KPD leaders susceptible to both Bela Kuhn's influence, but also the party's own confused and impatient rank and file. Now, that said, I think that starting in the summer of 1921, the KPD's constant interaction with the international was a crucial reason that they were able to rebuild the Communist Party in Germany under the leadership of Ernst Meyer. They develop a strategy of the United Front. Well, it was originally developed by rank-and-file German workers uh, in Stuttgart. And then it was elaborated on theoretically and on an international scale by Karl Radek in January 1921. 
And this involved a concerted effort to initiate joint struggles around basic needs at workplaces um, and elsewhere, and then politicizing them to bring in more and more workers from all parties in collective action. Sometimes that would involve, you know, official collaboration between the leaderships of parties. And the kernel of that idea is then built out in practice in Germany over the course of 1922-1923, and ultimately results in a more unified, a more capable, and a battle-tested Communist Party going into the most revolutionary situation in Germany um, in 1923. So on balance, I think the international did more to strengthen the KPD in those early years than it did to undermine it before 1924, when it really took a sharp turn for the worse. And in that early period, you know, the the international is far less uh, some kind of wire pulling villain or like a foreign body imposing itself and far more of a political foundation and a home for communist workers in Germany. Why did 1923 become a year of intense political turbulence in Germany? And why did the planned communist uprising not go ahead that year? So like I said, 1923 is probably the most revolutionary situation um, in the entire German revolutionary period. The hyperinflation, which is what most people know about 1923, you know, wheelbarrows full of German marks. The hyperinflation has to be understood as a product of the class struggle. So starting in the summer of 1922, uh, J.P. Morgan withdraws, recalls foreign loans to Germany. And as the, the recession is ending, Western competitors are recovering, and that eliminates Germany's export advantage. That then triggers a critical situation of industrial overcapacity in Germany and immediately re-raises the stabilization question that had been put off since 1921 through the continued rise in, in inflation. So the stakes of that stabilization question are the following. Everybody knows that somebody's going to have to pay for the social and economic burdens of the settlement and the end of the inflation. Um, So either German capital is going to have to be socialized and expropriated, or the workers are going to have to pay by means of, you know, increasing productivity and lengthening their working day relative and absolute surplus value. Either way, the question is a question of control over the workplace over the economy and over the state. So in November 1922, prominent industrialist Hugo Stinnes, um, he's like the leader of the industrialist insofar as they have one leader, publicly denounces the failure of the, cent- of the center government under Josef Wirt to adequately serve capital. And in response, a few days later, the government resigns. They're replaced then by a new government under the, the technocrat businessman Wilhelm Kuno. Uh, who, the, who the industrialists are hoping is more likely to finish the job breaking the working the workers' resistance. Suddenly then, in, so that happens in November, end of the year. Suddenly in January, the French enter the Ruhr in search of reparations payments, and their occupation temporarily suspends this conflict between the government and heavy industry. Instead, uh, they kind of unite in favor of a passive resistance that prioritize civil peace or, or labor peace while they resist the French demands. So throughout that spring of 1923, the government credits bankroll firms in the Ruhr, which is the occupied territory, um, until the mark collapses again in uh, mid-April. By early summer, uh, a number of things then result. Price controls are abandoned. Union-sponsored wage stabilization efforts break down. Um, and the blast furnaces and steel mills in the Ruhr grind to a halt. The labor piece obviously disintegrates, giving way to a massive wildcat strike wave 
that envelops the Ruhr and starts to bubble over into an open challenge to state authority, both, both French authority and German authority. This is the beginning of galloping hyperinflation, where printing money uh, and wildly rising the, the prices are seen as preferable um, to state intervention against the revolutionary movement. That revived revolutionary movement is also made possible by the emergence of new improvised institutions of the class struggle, which can be described as uh, more or less united front organs. So these consist primarily of the refounded factory councils on a new basis since the fall of 1922, uh, but they also include consumer control committees, uh, councils of the unemployed, and importantly, a paramilitary organization that was created through the factory councils in November called the Proletarian Hundreds. Communists uh, are often in leadership positions throughout uh, in, in all of these bodies, but they also the bodies also encompassed members of all the workers' parties and unions, and they continued to grow throughout this unrest. At this time, the, the new Kuno government during the summer paralyzed between three forces, allied reparations demands, the industrialists' intransigence, and then this new revolutionary wave that's not, not only in the Ruhr, but now rapidly spreading into central Germany, in Saxony and Thuringia. Meanwhile, fascist battalions are mobilizing around the country uh, in conjunction with an illegal and privately funded army known as the Black Reichswehr. This is the states organizing the, the German army illegally, uh, counter to the Versailles Treaty, but funded privately. So in the early summer, KPD rank-and-file leaders are pretty instrumental in coordinating the movement through all of their positions in the factory and the unemployed councils. But as the events reach new heights of radicalization in the Ruhr, the KPD leaders are worried that there's going to be an isolated upsurge uh, that won't get the support of the rest of the country and can easily be uh, put down. So they use their positions in the United Front Organs to rein in large sections of the spontaneous movement. That begins a turn in party policy, away from a reliance on their regional cadre and toward uh, what they describe as a refusal to be the driving element in, in a bid for power, even while the revolutionary movements continue to explode. By the last week of July, there's rolling wildcat strikes and occupations of factories and mines proliferating in the industrial West, directed by you know, the unemployed councils and factory councils, demanding the overthrow of the Kuno government. So dissatisfaction with the government has now spilled over into large sections of the middle classes as well, and also a lot of the ruling class people around uh, leading members of Kuno's own party. This is also the period in which workers occupying mines in the Ruhr are erecting gallows to haunt their, their German managers. So in mid-August, the factory council headquarters calls a general strike that brings 3 million people uh, workers out in Berlin Toppling the Kuno government within 24 hours, Kuno is replaced by a, a grand coalition, meaning that also includes the SPD, under the, the, the National Liberal Party uh, leader, Gustav Stresemann, uh, who promises then to finally stabilize the economy at the expense of workers. But the problem is the strikes don't end. The next day, sweeping political strikes expand to all Saxony and Thuringia, demanding the overthrow of the government and the creation of a workers' government. So where are the communists in all of this? At this point, they belatedly recognize what's going on. That this is a revolutionary situation. And they decide to prepare for an insurrection by withdrawing from all United Front organs and going underground. Beginning of the fall, the KPD is a mass party again, just shy of 300,000 organized members. Um, and they have over 3,300 3, local groups. 
And these are, you know, these are not just voters. These are communist people ready to go to the barricades. Over September, they make underground preparations for an armed uprising in October, what the, you know, everybody's calling the, the, the German October. But in the process, they lose contact with the ongoing rebellions around the country orchestrated through the United Front organs. The result is the demobilization of those movements, which end up dissipating into scattered economic protests and hunger riots as the communists disappear from the joint institutions. On October 10th, the KPD leader Heinrich Brandler and other members of the party leadership join the government in, in Red Saxony and in Thuringia, uh, hoping to use those positions to gather arms uh, and organize the insurrection. The final hour comes in on, on October 21st at a meeting of the factory councils in Saxony. Brandler puts forward a proposal to their coalition partners. These are um, probably the furthest left SPD members in, in any government to call a general strike. That's the proposal and which would likely lead to an armed insurrection. The SPD leaders are, are pretty solidly on the left, uh, but the evaporation of the mass movement left really no extra parliamentary basis for a workers' government, which was particularly alarming in the face of an impending invasion by the Reichswehr. So it's quite rational of the SPD left in Saxony then to shrink from that initiative, which they do, uh, and, and the KPD slunk out of the meeting, German October is aborted. At the end of September, Stresemann's government then cooperated with you know, iron and steel industrialists to stabilize the prices. They end the hyperinflation, uh, bringing the ca- class conflict that's underlying this whole thing out into the open. Government credits and wage supports for, for industry are withdrawn. Large-scale layoffs then result, creating a, a sudden spike in unemployment. Uh, and just as the leaders of the coal industry unilaterally declare the end of the eight-hour day in the beginning of October, in contravention to this kind of institutional partnership between the unions and the employers set up in, in 1918. Shortly after this, um, in October, the SPD is on the national level is forced out of the government. Troops are sent into Red Saxony to put down the insurrectionary movement and stabilize the business climate by dissolving the key gains of the German Revolution. What was the role of political violence, both from the left and the right during the 1920s? And how did the German courts and the various political actors and parties respond to it? So I think, you know, there's a there's a pretty clear gap between the Republican Democratic ideals of the SPD, who were often in power over the course of the Weimar Republic, and the deep state responsible for administering that republic. So throughout the 1920s, and especially after 1929, uh, the vast majority of the judiciary was unsympathetic, uh, at the least, to the new state. Judges are dispensing extremely political verdicts where political violence in service of, you know, so-called patriotic causes are just given a slap on the wrist, whereas left-wing challenges to state authority are, are given largely draconian sentences. So, for example, between 1918 and 1922, the far right committed 354 murders. Um, the, the left-wing commits a total of 22 murders. Still, of those 22 cases, 10 of them received the death sentence while 326 of the 354 far-right murders, or 92% of them, are they're, they're just released. If they were convicted, it was usually for only a four-month prison term. So all of the, it's, it's also worth noting, all of the reactionaries who were responsible for the cat putsch continue, uh, they get off scot-free, and then they continue to get their state-funded pensions afterward. You know, I think it says a little bit about the, the bias of the judicial system. 
Um, the role of, of violence, uh, I think that there's, um, you know, especially public violence has received a lot of attention lately in studies of the Weimar Republic. You know, despite the fact that uh, many of the revolutionaries in the beginning are coming out of the war, this very violent war, uh, the first couple of months of the revolution are largely a nonviolent period. The real break comes after January 1919 and the, the battles then, and especially throughout that spring through March and April. That was the bloodiest period of the revolution. And all of it was carried out as a means to reestablish capitalist order. So I think violence in the Weimar Republic largely stems from the need for the new state to establish some authority. And it really begins then in 1919 with Noska's months of brutal repression. It also marked um, that that period also marked the consolidation of the fascist Freikorps, whose ranks only grew throughout the following years of revolution, while the official military forces are kept in check, kept down to 100,000 uh, people by the terms of the Versailles Treaty. You know, you could consider all state power uh, rooted in violence and having the monopoly on violence. But ideally, from the perspective of state managers, you'd never have to exercise that. Uh, the threat alone is supposed to be what gives the state authority and legitimacy in a capitalist society. Weimar could not really rely on that assumption. So state managers, including social democrats often, had to make a calculation. How do they shore up the authority of the state in conditions of total crisis, food shortage, huge challenges to state power, while some of, try to avoid resorting to violence and the Fry Corps, once they commit to restoring capital accumulation as the basis of stabilization, they really didn't have any other choices in circumstances. The challenge to state power um, is not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing challenge that lasts over five years of the revolution. And even beyond that, it persists in various ways throughout the 1920s, you know, after the global crash of 1929, certainly in the, uh, the intensified street battles um, of the early 30s. Um, but of course, the, the state is not the only source of violence in the Weimar Republic, of course. Uh, and that's, I think, important to, to know. After 1923, you've got a process of industrial rationalization in, in, the, in the workplaces. It's spearheaded by the unions of all people um, that ends up increasing worker productivity and therefore throwing a whole bunch of workers out on the street as unemployed. Um, and that's the context in which the streets start to become they constitute this new public sphere where political power is contested. So the different parties set up armed paramilitary wings to test their power against each other through force, through violence, um, while the, the background kind of condition of this is that the legitimacy of the state continues to decline among the population. The state's authority is continually chipped away uh, by its inability, on the one hand, to resolve capitalism's crises, but also by these challenges on the revolutionary left, on the one hand, but also in the revolution and in, in the reactionary uh, and increasingly brutal far right, on the other hand. There's a huge difference between those two, of course. People are attracted to the left initially. Uh, maybe at least some of them are attracted to the left by an idealism and the hope of a better world as, you know, the promises of the new democracy are kind of collapsing around them. But more and more revolutionary workers, especially in the period of the United Front, are just people fighting for their basic needs. And so just like to make it concrete, they're fighting for price controls on their groceries or or pensions for widows and orphans or like literally firewood in the wintertime, as well as things like the right to defend themselves against the Fry Corps entering their homes in the night. So communist cadre that arise from these kind of initial joiners are then developed through collective actions and especially through a systematic plan of political education, which plays a way bigger role in the communist party than it does in any other party. Fascism, on the other hand, 
develops its cadre through a military context where violence serves as this kind of baptism into a new lifelong nationalist mission. So that's, I think, the political content of violence in the Weimar Republic. It's generally much more conducive to the far right. Overall, how would you say the formative years of the Weimar Republic that you've been talking about from approximately 1918 to 1923 contributed to its eventual collapse in 1933? Yeah, so when we're talking about the collapse of the Weimar Republic, we're talking about the Nazi seizure of power. Um, And I think that there are three major factors behind the rise of the Nazis and their seizure of power. First, you have the background condition of the loss of state legitimacy. Basically, all sectors of the population lose confidence in the Weimar governments uh, to resolve all of these social fractures, economic crises, and that includes workers in the middle class. But more importantly, it includes industrialists who lose confidence. They no longer think that the Republican state is capable of resolving the situation in their favor. The second major factor is the existence, the mere existence of a mass fascist movement uh, with its particular character and ideology. So by the early 1930s, you have an extreme right wing that, you know, as opposed to previous forms of conservative anti-socialism in pre-war Germany, are now committed to outright violence. Uh, This is a rather new thing. The fascists also represent a qualitative ideological departure from that older German right. They replace the, the, the Wilhelmine values of hierarchy and privilege with a future-oriented ideology of national racial community that can then appeal to wider swaths of the population. And the third major uh, factor be- behind the rise of the Nazis is, of course, the crisis conjuncture at the end of the, of the 20s. Um, the economic crisis of 29 quickly becomes a political and social crisis in Germany. Um, That eliminates any chance for reformist welfare legislation, notably, um, and therefore it eliminates the the possibility of a social democratic future for the working class in general. Um, The economic crisis also marks the onset of big businesses turn to, um, you know, these extra systemic solutions, namely the Nazis. All three of those factors are rooted in the patterns and processes that were established during the 1918 to 23 period of crisis and revolution and counter-revolution. The state lost legitimacy because of its inability and the inability of all the ruling parties to resolve the repeated crisis and fundamentally to build on the compromises at the founding of the Republic, um, which was a source of constant damage to their credibility. You've got hyperinflation, persistent unemployment, deteriorating welfare provisions, this never-ending cycle of uh, dissolving cabinets, All of these are contributing to the underconfidence in the Republican state form among the different strata of the population, you know, for their different reasons. Secondly, uh, on the the existence of the fascist movement, fascism is born in the counter-revolution. 1918, 19, uh, this is a turning point in public political violence against civilians. There's a lot of different fascist groups in the Weimar Republic, but the violent radicalization of the right as a whole is rooted in that revolutionary period and the ends to which they're deployed um, to crush the, the, the workers' movement. Their ideology was also shaped in those early years. And so, you know, the Nazis didn't grow because they were a narrow pet project uh, of the capitalist class from the outset. They grew because they set up a violent racist nucleus. And then they started to appeal to widening layers of what Claire Zetkin identified in 1923 as the politically homeless or the socially uprooted, destitute and disillusioned people in the Weimar Republic. 
all of whom are constantly being churned out by the repeated crises. And then lastly, the third factor, the crisis conjuncture, the social and political ramifications of that crisis are also historically determined. So after the ruling classes, you know, attempt years of adaptation, failed attempts to defang the, the and co-opt the labor movement, um, both the social democratic labor movement and the communist labor movement, the ruling classes are no longer able to organize themselves through the, the Weimar parliamentary system, let alone their economic in- interests. Um, and the framework, I think, of the republic looks inadequate to take the measures that are required to restore the capitalist economy as they were able to do it in late 1923, later when you get to 1932-33. Meanwhile, the Nazis are making themselves available as uh, this credible mass movement and extra systemic force. So, I, you know, there's also something to be said about the dynamics between the SPD uh, in and outside of state power and the KPD in the movements um, that's also important. So a lot of the core apparatuses of the Republic were constructed more or less as stopgap measures, um, largely in reaction to communism. It becomes this teetering house built largely on repression. And ironically, that only fuels adherence to communist politics among further layers of workers. First, you know, industrial militants, then the unemployed. All of this is happening despite the increasing irrationality and authoritarianism of the KPD, especially after 1924, though it doesn't all start then. So you've got this mutually reinforcing cycle where the failures of both the SPD and the KPD are generating an ever-widening space in which the fascist clowns, which is what they appear as in the beginning, are able to transform themselves into a reliable, salvational force in the eyes of both industrialists and growing numbers of working people. Immediately when the Nazis come to power, then, of course, uh, they start rounding up communists and social democrats, torturing, killing them by the dozens and hundreds as a prelude to the Holocaust and the genocidal murder of Jews. So I think that there's ultimately no way to explain that the ascendancy of the Nazis without placing the process of revolution and counter-revolution in those early years at the center. Weimar society on its social, political, and economic levels uh, was fundamentally unable to integrate its founding revolutionary breach and then the institutional shift that came along with it, both the reforms and the revolutionary movement. That was most evident, of course, during the episodes of, you know, social collapse and dual power during November Revolution, during Cap Putsch, and then during the 1923 hyperinflation, um, which is driven by the same revolutionary dynamics. But even from the social democratic point of view, every strategy to establish a workable social democracy within the capitalist market framework crashed on the rocks of economic crisis and political backlash from the employers. So the fundamental rift at the, at the core of the republic uh, played out through successive attempts by industrialists to achieve sta- so-called stabilization, all of which failed until the very end. Uh, and the deep crisis to which the Nazis then provide the solution is not just the global crash of 1929. It was the persistence of a mass revolutionary movement that refused to concede on people's very basic needs and aspirations when confronted with uh, the, the brutal imperatives of capital accumulation. Many thanks to Sean Larson for that account of the German Revolution and its legacy. You can find more of Sean's writing about German history on the Jacobin website, 